Before we begin, I wanted to give a big thank you to our sponsors for sponsoring this episode, Josie the Mountain Troll, Pamela, and C. Shaw. Thank you all so much. Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. If you would like to see full, unedited video recordings of our podcast, ask listener questions, or be thanked by name on each episode, please support the show by subscribing at patreon.com backslash Southern Bramble. You're listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light. And I'm Austin Bane X Bramble on Instagram. And today we have an incredibly important guest with us, except they're not really a guest. He's sitting right next to me. Today we're going to be discussing um, with Marshall your new book. Hi. Hi. Yay. Oh my gosh. I'm I'm so excited to talk about my own book on my own podcast. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's not a self-plug at all. No, um, no, no. It's not a self-plug. Well, it's not I have a self-plug. I plenty of those, but this isn't one of them. <laughs> um, uh, I've heard that about you. Um, I, I, bet, I bet. I, you know, it can't be a self-plug because I'm the one who uh, I said, you know, it would be a really good idea is when your book comes out. And God, this was before the book. I think. I mean, it, you had art, but like nothing was put together. Nothing was linear. Oh yeah, you brought this up like last fall. I hadn't put yeah. everything all together like in a consecutive place yet. It was all still on the notes app of my phone. <laughs> and we'll we'll get to we'll we'll talk about this a little bit more. But like I'm re- mm-hmm. I l- really love the way that you've organized this and set the set the structure of the book up. But um. Yeah, I was like, let's, how about I interview you on our own podcast about your own book? And it's not, yeah, it's not going to be a self-plug at all. Exactly. (laughs) If you haven't read the book yet, we're not going to give any major spoilers away here, but we will be talking about some of the ins and outs of of the innards of my book. So if you want to go in completely Mm. blind, if you want to go in completely blind, save this episode for after giving it a flip through or reading it. Um, If you don't mind at all and you're interested before getting started, this might be a great episode for you to listen to to make that decision. I can see how much work you put into it. I'm excited and I'm excited to talk about it. Well, thank you. Me too. You're welcome. So let's talk about your childhood trauma first. Let's go for Um, it. um, So when you were a young little gay boy, Mm -hmm. you decided that you wanted to write a big, big witchcraft book. No, I'm kidding. But we've been talking for a while about Mm -hmm. the power of of narrative in witchcraft. And this this isn't just an us thing. This is a thing that's in folklore, the power of storytelling, the power of narrative, historiola, narrative charms um greek drama not even just greek drama that's a biased example um but it's my best example um but you know the power of sitting down calling spirits forth or even in the case of you developing narratives around spirits that are not you know anywhere necessarily and yet birthing them into existence and I was wondering if you could talk more about this and talk about basically what inspired this book because 
it really did. I mean, I, I just remember you sending me little short stories and then through it text. It's, yeah, through text. No, literally, just like little. <laughs> it would little... be like a, a literally a, a mini novel in a text. When people talk yeah. about getting novels for texts, I literally sent them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was like a whole, you know, when you're text is too long so it condenses it on mm -hmm. on iMessage I and I would open it and you know it'd be these like really interesting short stories almost and I, I just remember that and I just want to know what wh how did this develop how did this grow you know I, I want to tell you that but one of the things that I want to talk about before just to set the the record because I feel like I need to say this before that um I did a I did a poll or a question recently on Twitter a few weeks ago about whether or not your belief in something matters in your practice. And there was a lot of responses, but one of them was really fascinating. It was from Phil Hine, the author of Condensed Chaos. I love, love Phil. Phil Hine. If you're listening, I adore you. Yes. It, it, it was interesting. I, love I was Phil. I was talking about the belief in things and the idea of egregores built by belief. And, you know, it, it, it spawned an idea where where he kind of said like I don't think the belief is as important as people seem to think it is. Um, you you're the spirit doesn't care whether or not you believe in it, and and I thought that was really fascinating because I was kind of like, but what if my belief is what's creating the spirit? I'm an animist, and he says I'm an animist too, but a rock has spirit whether I believe it does or not because it exists. And I was like, because it exists, it has spirit. Hmm. I've been looking at it in a completely wrong way that my belief in the thing that I was writing and creating had spirit because I believed in it. And that was not the case. It has spirit because it solely exists. I may have written it, but now it exists. So it right. has spirit. And I think I was missing that part. So when we talk about narrative magic, narrative witchcraft, um, we talk about these stories and these characters that are in them. Their spirits written in a narrative. So in my book, the first part is a collection of stories and tales. And a lot of these tales will have characters in them. Some of them have names. Some of them don't. Some of them don't even have genders or physical descriptions. Um, I really, really want the reader to find themselves in these stories so they can experience firsthand what these stories are telling and and they can experience them and then pull from them for their practice and their craft. I want the reader to recognize that they aren't just reading a simple piece of fiction. They're reading the historiola, the narrative of a spirit. They are learning the virtues of these spirits. And they're not necessarily things that I think I created, but I do think that I pulled from inspirations to put together this conglomerate um, or this conglomeration, if you will, of, of, of archetypes of, of spirits that I can then pull from and work with, merc magic with. That's, that's really kind of what I love about, about narrative magic because when you have a story that makes you passionately love this character, that makes you cry, that makes you fall in love, that makes you hate with, with, with vitriol and anger, you are passionate about that experience that you're having. That's magic. That can be funneled into your craft. And that's, that's what these stories do. Yeah. I, um, I think a lot 
about um, getting into my own personal practice, uh, which I don't want to go too, too far into. But, you know, when we talk about the theater or the stage is like a container or the book as a container um, and also then the circle or the ritual space as a container, we are you know, to, I, and I try and stay away from microcosm, macrocosm stuff, but it really is a really good example of that is that you are- I'm down for it. I like that stuff. You are creating a container, a world, a microcosm within itself, like for a moment, even if it's not real, which there's already a heresy in, in you know, things like things that contain, you know, religious- examples or or like marriages like pl marriages that take that center around or, or i'm sorry plays that center around marriages right mm -hmm. um you know the act of marrying yourself or or mocking a marriage and which a play is a mock marriage that, that's very like heretical in its own right but for a moment you were immersing yourself into this world and the same thing with a book you were immersing yourself into this and it allows the mind to explore and play and then when you think about it in a very magical context like there's so much room for you to travel through that as a portal and use your magic through that as a portal and I think you've definitely um, done that and I, I want to talk to you about and it, for everybody listening um, like we said we're not going to give too too many things away I hope please go read the book it's actually like it's really dope. Um, and I'm not just saying that because you're my podcast host. Oh, thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> gee whiz. Thanks, Ben. Gee golly. Yeah. One of my favorite stories um, is The Hidden Book, which is one of the first stories or the first story. I think it's actually number two, chapter two, oh. part, part one, chapter two. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. But this is something that, and I like in the beginning of the book, you're like, hey, I really would appreciate if the reader would read this in order. Because there are times mm -hmm. when the, this world, they're not, some, some of them feel like their own individual worlds. Yes. And then at some times, the worlds are overlapping in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so sometimes you'll see characters flit in and out of different stories, which I... I really appreciate um, an anthology that uses. There uh, is a section in in the in the introduction, which is why the introductions are so important to read before you get started. And it says in all caps, "Do not attempt to work the magic in this book without fully reading and analyzing the stories and poems first. You will not yet know the energies you're calling upon or have credence to properly work these rites. These are specifically written in an order to be read, where information is revealed to you in a specific sequence." And I think in a book of short stories, a lot of people think they can just hop around. I'll read this one because it's shorter today. I'll read this one because I have more time. These have to be read in order and they're meant to. And I deeply, deeply hope people follow that. Yes, it it really seems, um, like I said, like you've given, because it's not meant to be linear. It's it's not like a linear timeline of things, but it is very Correct. much like yeah. re read these well, I guess in some ways it is linear. But the book it, is linear, but the actual tales are told out of time, if you will. Yeah, yeah, because there's different things going on. And 
in the book you have so for those listening and who are like well i don't just necessarily want to read a storybook it isn't just a storybook there is operative magic um so the book which i guess we're going a little outside of the brief but i'll explain it a little better i think if we say it now the book is split up into three parts marshall do you want to explain it that yeah So it's, it's like you said, it's split up in three parts. Part one is um, cutting tales. So you have 13 chapters. That means 13 individual tales or parables that will teach you lessons in witchcraft in the form of narrative. Uh, part two is uh, cunning rhymes. And these are poems. So very specific. Some of them are shorter, some of them are longer. And they will sometimes teach you recipes or tell stories on on how to, to do certain things with certain rites, if you will. Would that be elixirs, potions, um, charms, um, or, uh, or puppets. So a lot of different ways in which you could go about um, using that section. And, and it's actually, it's one of my favorites because there's some really cool ways that I got to deliver information that felt just so fucking witchy. <laughs> uh, part three is the actual operative magic. So it's uh, the cunning, it's the cunning compendium. It's an actual, a literal grimoire or a collection of grimoires with uh, again, 13 chapters. There's 13 chapters in each section, 13 in my opinion. Um, is a magical number not because it's just you know oh the magical number 13 but the 13 represents in my opinion the 13th hour it's the time out of time it's the hour that's not visible on our clock between midnight and one so um that was why i chose the number 13 for each section and that will have 13 chapters that will go over a lot of actual operative magic practical spells practical workings there'll be some that are written out explicitly on how to do them some will have a lot of um, alterations depending on your your place on the world and and some are base formats for you to then expand upon in your own personal practice yes i think the way that you've really set that up is interesting because two it's almost like you can when you're finally finished reading the stories you can open up or move on to you know the practical magic side but they almost they they mirror each other which is nice which again you've really you really did think about the structure of the book so one of the first things that you come across excuse me is um a protection elixir and i like the formula that you give within your book and I also like that you talk about some of these things because I think we've all been very exposed to and I think for many of us me included are Mm -hmm. incredibly tired of like recipe book format um witchcraft books which there's nothing wrong with it but I think what you've done is you've kind of taken this idea of like Macbethian witches who are like you know telling you what they're putting in their potion while rhyming in a charm or or, or rhyming and saying an incantation and telling you you know exactly what's going in it and I think you've you've done that especially with um some of your elixirs and your potions and your oils and things like that and I was wondering if you could talk to us more about that yeah you know since I was young and got into witchcraft, like I said, a, a young age, which you'll learn about in the introduction, because <laughs> you get to get some more of my history, or honestly, you could just go back to listen to episode one of this entire podcast to learn about both of our histories. Um, 
I have always been obsessed with magical spell books. If you watch any witch movies or witch books and they have that like that big grimoire with it, like all the pictographs and symbols and and words. And, and you know, I grew up with with the worst witch and um, all these different types of things with rhyming couplets. And I loved this idea of beautiful, flowery witchcraft that wasn't so radio instruction manual if you will <laughs> you know i feel like a lot of times i open up a witchcraft book and it's like don't get me wrong like you know you you, you open up a, a grimoire and a lot of it is, is seems like dry milk toast and and i want i want to give something that just as i read the material it I wanted it to touch me on an artistic level, not just touch me on an academic level. So the cunning rhymes are cunning. Yeah. The cunning rhymes, magic and verse section is all about a type of delivery that really inspires you and makes you feel closer to the fluidity of the magic instead of just feeling like you are looking at an academic textbook or just another recipe book because I didn't, I don't want to give you just another recipe book. I want to give you something that makes you feel like the magic is being performed for you in a written form, if you will. Yeah, well, I think the the issue with, and I, I think everyone knows that my opinions on recipe formats, mm -hmm. um, I don't, that's just not how I look at witchcraft. I love a formula, don't get me mm, wrong. Yeah. Um, it's not that, it's just that when we are deducing magic to formula based off i don't know correspondence or whatever it really is unfortunate me to me to see like a lot of the inspiritedness <laughs> of material and of formula and of like the actual like witchcraft practical magic side of it taken out of it so what i think you do is by laying these narrative charms out i mean when and I, i'm not pulling up your book so i'll say something that i i can speak on from Macbeth which is mm -hmm. you know of course double double toil and trouble fire burn and cauldron bubble yes. liver of a fenny snake in the cauldron boil and bake and it goes on from there but some of your writing is very similar to that in that it conjuring the spirit the insource settlement is being narrated for you like you said um, and so that you can you know drop this into the whatever you're using cauldron or otherwise yes and um uh yeah th there's there's just an an act of insourcement that is there a conjuration that is there that is spoken into the words and i think that's that's really fascinating i'd love to read an expert for our listeners if that an excerpt is yeah. cool with you yeah i didn't have one pulled up and i know i got it i got <laughs> it in front of me <laughs> A witch consorts with spirits. We twist magic in either direction, which is why it's most important a witch has sufficient protection. Wards up for your home, your land knows you by name. Items worn that guard you if a hex towards you takes aim. No witch should be without protection, not a moment of day or night. Once you've spoken with the spirits, they have you in their sight. Come one, come all, whether invited matters not. A witch's power is a beacon to the spirits you have brought. So protect yourself you must. This can be done in many ways, with amulets or talismans, or a truly cunning phrase. 
This potion, this elixir, can be used for your protection, so make haste to brew this essence and add to your collection. And then it continues on and goes into the actual ingredients and how to put it together. So a witch could read this and extract the information from it and actually make this. And then, of course, just, just so it's absolutely clear after the poem itself, I write down the recipe. <laughs> um, right, right. Absolutely. Um, you know, we also, as much as we love our flowery language, it's mm -hmm. too like, okay, and speak plainly. Right. Um but I do think that you you are giving something really fascinating there. And I, I like the way that you even address like, hey, you're a witch, baby. And when you when you do that initiation or sometimes when you start saying that, um, and I, again, I think people know my opinions on this, but like when when you're starting to claim that, mm -hmm. um, you have to take on the responsibility of what that actually means. And that also means like, spirits are going to be attracted to you for that um i i really wanted to make sure that was very clear because i think a lot of people get in this and they talk about protection and everyone talks about protection but sometimes we've always heard of it yes i think that and... the reason why gets lost a lot of people think it's oh you gotta protect yourself from other witches oh you gotta protect yourself from bad thoughts y you are a trafficker of spirits you are standing in the identity of a witch when you craft magic when you tap into the liminal you are a beacon in the darkness and whether you want all spirits to see you that's too fucking bad you're visible so there's a reason witches work with protection there's a reason we put wards around our home there's a reason we wear amulets there's a reason we work protection magic and there's a reason why so many of us suggest we start there i wanted to make sure there was an all-purpose elixir that can be used in many ways um, for your home, for your pets, for your um, jewelry on amulets and and, and powders. Um, yeah, so that's what that's about. Yeah, I and you know also to the fact that I think I said in a recent episode I don't remember which one. Um, <laughs> maybe this will come out before the episode I said it, I don't remember. But <laughs> it, I was like, you know, it's not like the witchcraft community is known for having the most methodol methodological, stable, not unhinged people in it. So mm. yeah, also too, you know, because it's better to protect yourself from the witch you don't know than have no protections against the witch you do. Absolutely. Um <laughs> Moving on in your story, first flight, and I, I don't. I don't do you want to talk about pegging, Marshall? <laughs> you want to talk uh, about getting, uh, getting fucked? <laughs> yeah. You know, this was a fascinating story. Um, this was one of the probably I can't. I think this is one of the first ones you sent to me. Not the first one, but I remember getting this one early on, and I was mm -hmm. like. This is interesting. I sent it to I sent it to you. I sent it to Olivia, and I think I sent it to one other person. And I I was like I said nothing, and I and I wanted to hear back what they said back, and and I'm not going to give it. Like I said, I don't want to give you too many details away. But what this is about, but there there is an act when we talk about witchcraft. A lot of times we talk about the definition of it is an act of transgression historically. Um, witch trials and the definition of a witch specifically was a transgressor. And I wanted to take the concept of, of sexual union, 
which a lot of times in the past, especially historically, has been extremely patriarchal. It's been all about the man. It's always, it's been about, um, you know, there's no time frame in my book, but it's clear that it's not in modernity. Uh, but in his historically, you know, like we had situations where marriages were arranged based off of advantage for, you know, the wife's family. Um, there were literal fathers who sold their daughters. There was dowries. To this day, we still have weddings where the father is asked to give away the daughter. And I really felt like this story deserved to take some power back, not to take power back, but to assert the individual's power. And the, the main character in this book is a woman and she's a young woman. And, and she, she does mention certain aspects of her life that are um, out of her control during this time period. And there is a type of, of initiation that takes place that does include a sexual act. And there's a transgressive moment um, where she's the one doing the fucking. And it really, really takes a moment to, to sit back. She and really said, this one's yeah, for the girls. This one's for the girls. And I, I was like, this is radical. This is transgressive. This is ownership of your sexual power in a time that a lot of women were absolutely um, stripped of that, that power of sexuality. And I wanted her to have this experience. And it was important for me to readers to not quite realize it was happening till it was in your face. And, and you kind of, as a reader are, are a little bit like, oh, okay, that's happening. Oh, okay. Um, interesting. And, and I wanted that transgression to be, to be clear and beautiful and radical and sexy. So yeah, let's talk about pegging. <laughs> and and sexy it was, um, certainly. No, I, I thought it was a very captivating story. And I don't I don't want to say much more about it. I want the reader to read it. Yeah. Honestly, instead of talking about it. I want to because it's so fresh. Something that we've been talking about what I've been talking about for a lot with my friends personally for I don't know probably like the past like year now or so is the concept of worldview mm -hmm. and cosmology building right and how important these are in witchcraft and unfortunately often how overlooked it is mainly because it's not something that anybody actually stresses and that's that's fine um but worldview is going to shape what your magic looks like but not just what your magic looks like what your everyday life looks like this is also going to be your motivators your ethical and moral complications your convictions your desires so there's reason why worldview is important and it's a much bigger concept than this is the candle that i light and this is the color of it because xyz and that right. is also a part of it but it's also a very grand concept and cosmology is basically going to be the way in which you perceive this information whether it's mythical whether it's canonical like um whether you're going off of like a, a based tradition right for example hellenic polytheism or whether you are taking a more mythic narrative think dante's inferno we know that's not or the divine comedy that's not like a uh canonically true story but it is a 
mythic story taking themes and blending that and synthesizing that into a story to create something new. And I think that's something that you've done is that you've built a world, you've built a cosmology taking thematic elements um, and blending them and synthesizing them together um, in a really interesting way. And so this is very important. I think this is why the book is so important. Why I'm so hyped about it is because this is like the really good juicy stuff, which can lead to other really good juicy stuff. And I'm I'm so excited about it. And you know, I like I like that you mentioned that the concept of of the world building aspect and 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 the mythology. Like I know I look a lot of of I'm not saying that I built a new form of witchcraft because that's not what I necessarily set out to do. But at the same time, I did build a cosmology within this book. The thing is, is it's inspired by so many other things and it was really fun to not only write it, but then to share with the audience after each tale a little bit more about the inspirations behind it. Um, so people are, are very clear about where the origins of these stories came from, because many of them were inspired by real people, real events, real experiences. And a huge portion of my book will present a very queer spectrum of witchcraft. I mean, we were talking about pegging, we we're talking about reversal of sexual roles in intercourse. And I want people to read this and be very aware that you are going to be reading about queerness and witchcraft and the thing is is it's not i'm not saying that it's not in your face because it will be in your face but it will be in your face just to the way it should be as witchcraft is queer and i feel like as much as i love a lot of these other books that are including queerness and witchcraft many of them are just a lot of times let me rephrase because I actually love them and I don't want to take away from the importance of them but I didn't want to just take witchcraft as it is and slap queer on it um these these exist in a queer spectrum um and and a lot of these tales will really really tap into the queerness of 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 gender identity of sexuality of weirdness of 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 completely non corporeal beings you know I mean it, it gets into that liminal space and it, it makes it very clear how it fits that way instead of trying to fit it in, if you will. I absolutely do. And um, speaking of inspiration and where things come from, yeah. I need to talk to you about the mothers, okay, um, which are integral to your book absolutely they're really important they're really um, important they even get their own like dedicated working books um mm -hmm. which maybe i shouldn't have said that but no, like, that's fine that's fine i've already released the whole table of con table of contents so the, okay. those have been seen um and and oof, that was that was great that was great stuff and i was wondering um uh, the Red Mother, I think, is probably actually the first story that I read from you. It might have um, been. Uh, uh, Old Mother Red Crap Cap, I think it was titled at the time. Um, and I don't know if it's still that title. But I was wondering if you could tell us more about their mother, the mothers, their magic, some of the mysteries that are in this book. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, you know, a specific mystery I'm talking about, which is fabulous. And, and also like where, where some of these come from, because I mean, we can, we can obviously like, 
you know, see where, where this inspiration comes from. And yes. I, I don't think you, you don't shy away from that. Like, no, no, I have actually, I, I have a section that specifically explains the inspiration um, behind these characters and I, I'm, I'm happy to share it again. Uh, and I think it's really cool. Cause yes, there are three different stories and the titles of them are our mother in red, our mother in green and our mother in black. And they're inspired by Gemma Gary's book, The Black Toad. Um, I have that here. If you haven't read The Black Toad, it's a fantastic book. Uh, it's called The Black Toad, West Country Witchcraft by Gemma Gary. You can get it at um, troybooks.co.uk. Don't try to get it on Amazon. It's it's secondhand there, so it's way overpriced. Just order directly from the website if you ever want to. But it's a, work, it's a grimoire of sorts with a collection, um, a lot of historical magic and charms. And what's really fascinating is it's broken down into three sections, um, Old Mother Redcap, Old Mother Green Cap and Old Mother Black Cap. And, you know, we actually talked to Gemma uh, about these 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 chapters and the images, like I, ju I just showed this image for people who can see on our Patreon. Um, it's a fascinating line drawing of this person with their head covered um, with a, a witch's ladder doing a sort of charm. And there's no face, there's no name, there's no story. The only thing you get is are historical charms. And the second one, the Old Mother Green Cap, is all about uh, plant magic, specifically, I don't want to say majoritively, a lot of healing aspects of plant magic. And then Old Mother Black Cap gets into curse rites. It gets into owl blinking and uh, uh, bla uh, owl, bl owl blasting and that's a lot of a, a British term, but basically it's curses and hexes. And so none of them were actual real people in this book. And the history of Old Mother Redcap is fascinating. I believe it was a name that was given to the historical mother Shipton and then became kind of popular in, in, in Britain and Europe. And it was kind of a term given for a local witch, or I should say wise woman of the village or a local herbalist. I believe it kind of branched off from there i think when in our interview with Gemma, she mentioned that yeah the green cap came from cecil williamson as a kind of a spinoff and then she created old mother black old mother black cap for this three this three section book and i was just so obsessed with this concept and these these images that were put in my mind from from this inspiration i had i felt like there were there's a story there these are archetypal beings that I felt deserved to have their stories written. Um, however, they were going to come to me. I didn't know how they were going to come to me yet. And so the first one I wrote, uh, I did call um, uh, Mother Red Cape uh, because it really got the cap wasn't really about a hat. It was about a head covering. So a lot of times it was a cloak or a veil. And uh, I ended up changing it to a couple things over a period of time. And now uh, they are our, our mother in red, our mother in green, our mother in black. Yeah, I think I think that answers the first part of that question. It does. I think there's a lot of, you know, it reminds me in some ways. It, there's so many, of course, concepts of of three and, you know, three, yes. three distinct pathways. This is not like a, this isn't even just a um, thematic concept. This is almost like a, dare I say I don't want to say culturally ubiquitous I think that's a stretch but I think this is something that shows up in a lot of different places yes um and for a lot of different spirits this idea of um red white and black uh green red and black um 
or you know color being very important which we'll get to that in a second yeah. um so i think that this shows up with you know even um it reminds me a lot of suspiria but yeah the idea of these pathways um are really interesting and these are not you know as you stated as as Gemma Gary stated in our interview I believe like there it's not really like if I think with the Black Toad it was partially a way to split up chapters like it was an organizational thing yeah um, and then of course it was also calling upon these pathways of witchcraft mm -hmm. well um, I, I like them to archetypes because we're talking about archetypal ideas we're talking about um, a color association with his an actual historical color association with red uh, a charmer that's it's yeah. it's as simple as that with greens it's as simple as association with plants it's black associated with sat a shadow self so mm. I thought of them as archetypes that can be tapped into and then dwindled it down to an actual spirit that can be tapped to and into and called upon i was wondering if you could tell us anything about this story specifically about um the main character in the story or even the mother herself yes i i, I want to be very careful not to give anything away but for the um our mother in red was was a really really important story for me um because it also continues to deal with um uh, the tale of a queer character and it does deal a lot with gender identity and I grew up struggling a lot with not only my own sexuality but sometimes but some of my own gender identity issues as well and while I do not identify as trans I do identify as you know gender fluid and um, I I wanted there to be a story that I wish I had read growing up that celebrated and and gave respect to owning one's gender identity. And it was really important to me to create something that I wish I could have read when I was younger. Um, I even reached out to several of my friends who are trans and sent them this because I wanted to make sure, not only am I not speaking over the trans voice, but more so that I wanted, I wanted there to be an inclusion of that voice because I don't think there are to this day really any major uh, fairy tales, folk tales that give voice to that experience. And it was an extremely cathartic story to write. And, and it made me feel very, very close to the mother in red. Um, I felt like it was one of the, it was, it was, I hate to put this in a silly way, but it was the fairy godmother I wish I had growing up. And, and in a way, that just made you feel comfortable, respected, and 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 at peace in a in a time of honestly a lot of great turmoil, especially as a young adolescent. It was a really um, touching story to read, I think, and I think it leaves because you don't really you're not holding anyone's hand through the book, and you make that actually quite clear that you're trying not to hold anyone's hand through the book and so i think that allows people to draw their own conclusions i want um, that i want people to draw a lot of conclusions because uh that's what's going to make your practice so unique from the materials of the source material mm -hmm. i think you can draw your own conclusions from there and and i guess that's all i'll say on that but i think you can absolutely think about perhaps who who takes on the role of, of Red Mother.
and I'll I'll leave it at that. There's another story in your book. So these concepts of magic is is really interesting how you're how you're kind of taking again you're not you didn't set out to reinvent the magical wheel and -hmm. i don't necessarily think that's what needs to be done it's not like (laughs) magic blasphemy there's no such thing but like you know what i mean like it's it's not like where the fuck are you pulling this from marshall like it's clear like Uh it's not it's not out of left field um but i do think it's really interesting in the ways that you discuss some of these concepts one of them being the seven holy siblings which Uh. is obviously a personification of the days of the week um i think you're really riffing on some interesting like agrippa stuff exactly um, or picatrix stuff um by extension and yeah, can you tell us more about the seven holy siblings? This is actually one of my favorite parables because I, I I I don't call it a story. I call it a parable because it's teaching you something without realizing that you're learning it till you have already learned it. I was very inspired by the, like I said, as an animist, I see spirit in everything, and that include that that includes everything. So I wrote a parable that personifies the days of the week, and and it it, it teaches you how to learn about their um, their magical virtues and capabilities. So imagine, imagine seven temples dedicated to the seven, you know, uh, uh, planetary virtues and the days of the week who are their, their coordinators or directors of these temples. And so you have a seven part story that details the characterization of each day of the week. And um, it connects to the back of the book and the grimoire that teaches you how to create talismans by beseeching and petitioning these day, um, these, these, figures these archetypes on those days uh it was really really fun to write because it did i i did source um both agrippa and Gemma gary's traditional witchcraft which i feel like kind of bridges that ceremonial and the folk magic together to create something that is a little bit more um taking the stereo instruction manual and giving it a nice tail so it makes it a little bit more not necessarily just digestible but a little bit more fun uh-huh. Yeah, I I think your your image your images for them too are really they're very interesting. They make use of the planetary chimeras or the the number squares or not even really the number squares, but the sigils that come from the number yeah, the squares. Seals. It's really really great stuff. Color is also a really important tool in your book, as we were alluding to throughout the book. I mean, there's uh, red, black, and green mothers. There's the man in black, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's the first story. Um, and then yeah, there's um, then there's the man in yellow, Ooh. which I love your illustrations that you sent me for this um, was fabulous. And this like canary yellow striking thing. And it reminds me of the crucible where uh somebody's character i can't remember who is like goody proctor's sending her devil her her phantom to me in the shape of a little yellow bird and it's you know this amazing she's pinching me she's pinching me (laughs) um make her stop can you uh, there's also the three wise healers which is uh the red black and white i believe Mm -hmm. um 
aspects of witchcraft. And I was wondering if you could tell us more of where your use of color comes from. Um, because again, I don't necessarily think it's out of left field, but um, how can you apply this to some of the operative magic that's throughout the book? Well, each each time that color was involved, it came from an origin source that existed before the tale. So um, I love that you brought up the from the crucible with the sending the little devil bird because that's actually well, it didn't come from the crucible, but it came from literally Salem, Massachusetts. Um, Tijuba was the first to be accused in Salem during the nineteen sorry the the sixteen ninety two Salem witch trials. Uh, the group of adolescent girls accused her and after she was she was you know um an enslaved woman the only person of color in all of salem so she was already an outcast uh puritans technically did not believe in slavery but this uh, i believe samuel paris was the salem village preacher and and he was asked to come from Barbados. And so she was literally stolen from her homeland. Uh, she was enslaved and she was accused of witchcraft and she was beaten by her enslaver till she confessed. And she told a, a wild tale of the devil coming to her in the woods and uh, came with several familiars, one of them being a little yellow bird. So I wrote this story surrounding this little yellow bird. And, and it was interesting when I actually went to Salem last year, I did a walking tour and the, I hesitate to say that either a lot of the information that exists in for free online is leaving some things out or the, mm, mm, the tour guide embellished slightly. One of the things. Tour, oh my God. I had to tell somebody, somebody asked me like, Oh, I'm going to new Orleans. What's your favorite thing to do? Cause I've been there a few times mm -hmm. and I was like, have a tour take a tour it's so much fun but just know that they there's <laughs> they lie they lie the historical <laughs> accuracy where mama uh -huh. and this is for also any listeners out there they're just because it's in a museum just because mm -hmm. somebody looks like they have authority and is telling you about something does not mean that is the truth that doesn't yeah. mean that's the case there's missing information about salem too you know even yeah. even like historical sources are it happened a long time ago, documents, you know, nuances, documents, language, all those things really complicate a story. Mm -hmm. um, throw in somebody who got hired and is making money based off of how many tours they do. Just think mm -hmm. about that. And uh, a factual, Owen Davies' uh, academic textbook on the Salem witch trials is not nearly as interesting as a highly embellished walking tour that tells oh, yes. you about every little detail of what went on like they were there um sorry go ahead <laughs> go That's ahead it. well it's okay no, no, you're absolutely right because he yes he went on to say that a man dressed entirely in yellow approached her not necessarily just the yellow bird and i was like you know I, as he said this i was like i've never read that anywhere but the visage he said imagine being in salem in 1692 where color was not really allowed it was in black and white and a man dressed in solid canary yellow approaches you in the woods you would have been absolutely bamboozled it would have been shocking and i loved that visage so i wrote it in my story and um i the the yellow itself wasn't necessarily representing anything that has to do with color magic as much as represented a time period when coming across someone entirely an absolute sunshine yellow would have been bombastic 
I mean, it would have been out of this world it, and it would have, it would have kind of shocked someone out of their complacency. And um, I wanted that to be part of the story. Yes. Uh, especially because there was um, plenty of yellow pigments for paint, but none that would have been made into a dye. At yeah. That especially point. for Puritans. So that, yeah. Especially for Puritans where even the idea of color, mm -hmm. um, ostentatious color being like gluttonous to the eyes like to, to feast upon too much mm -hmm. color is is well, draw attention you should be drawing attention to yourself you should be drawing attention mm -hmm. to god right <laughs> um, um but I, I actually like that you brought up the um the three wise healers i've talked about this i mean the three wise healers as a magical concept existed before the story and uh i have shared a little bit more on my page lately but the three wise healers come from a, a, an an a photograph that existed before this tale that was, and you may have seen it. I posted on my page. If you look it up, literally, if you look up three women holding foxes, it's usually the first thing that pops up. And it's these three women um, in, in red, black, and white holding three foxes that are red, black, and white. And it was just such a fantastical image. I knew there was something that more there. And I ended up creating a charm in the fall of 2021 that, that was about calling upon this visage to heal oneself or to heal someone as a, as a narrative charm. When I wrote the book, I knew there was a story that was bigger for this charm. And, um, the colors themselves basically end up rep representing something larger. So um, the charm goes. There once were three wise healers, one with hair as red as blood, one as black as a raven, and one as fair as flax. The first one healed your wounds. The second took your pain. And the third makes you whole again. And the concept was you put your hand over a wound and you say this charm. It's as simple as something you'd read in The Long Lost Friend or maybe an old uh, commonplace uh, uh, healer's or Cunning Man's Wise book or, you know, one of the things like that. Um, the colors themselves kind of coordinate to the concept of blood, of absence, and of soul. So, you know, the... the the one of red hair connects to the the blood, the literal lifeblood of the body in the wound. Um, the sister, the the sibling that has the black hair connects to absence, so they take your pain away. And the third makes you whole again because it re it you know reinvigorates the body and the soul and connects it back together. So you you are uh, devoid of any malady left behind. The book is set up into three parts. Um, the stories cunning rhymes and then the grimoire and even within the grimoire there's other parts like i had alluded to earlier there's mm -hmm. the um the book of the red mother the book of the green mother and the book of the black mother and they're small um but they're filled with a lot of good things These, and this was one of my favorite parts to write because you have these stories, our mother and red, our mother and green, our mother and black, and in the back in the in the third section, you will have a literal chapter that is designated to their magic. In the red book, you might find a spell that's for an amulet for safe travels and involves a red charm bag, and then a few different things that go in there, a slip of paper with the following phrase written on it. Just as the red mother crosses the land, sea, and sky, so shall the carrier of this amulet travel safely till they return home. It's It's... And it's narrative magic continued and pulled from this story. So like in the green book, there is a spell that 
involves the uh, abracadabra triangle. So it takes an actual historical healing amulet and and it kind of takes it into a charm bag where you put um, some of the herbs that are mentioned, specifically known for healing, that are also in the story. And then with a charm, you might say over it, abracadabra, said the green mother into the ear of the sick. I've gathered herbs from my garden and I've come to heal you up quick. The magic word took away all ailments from the afflicted. A gift from the green mother, no more shall they be afflicted. So it takes, uh, in certain parts, historical charms. In certain parts, it actually just takes um, known virtues and correspondences that connect to those things. And it connects back to these stories. So when you read the green book, you will be reading the magic that you can envision uh, the mother in green actually doing within their world, their purview, um, their cosmology. I honestly love it. Um, the books for me... Well, it, it reminds me in some ways of the Black Toad, mm -hmm. um, not necessarily like the magic that's in it. I guess you could say in some ways it does, but it really is your own thing, which I think is the really fabulous part about the book is, again, that you're not hiding or, or shying away from being like, this is where I'm getting this from. But then you're really expanding on a concept. And like I said, I think um, for Gemma it was really a way to organize the book mm -hmm. um, because it's not like she goes into these people as characters even though we we did ask her on our podcast like where you know where did you get some of this from and then I mean honestly there's so much stuff equated to Mother Shipton uh, oh she, yeah like everything um, even even like almanacs and things like that being like equated to like oh this is Mother Shipton's prophecy book you know and it's obviously you know pseudepigraphical right but um, I think what you've done is you've really really built these characters these spirits these stories and i think it's it's also too you know going back to what you were saying what phil was saying of of it doesn't matter really whether you believe in them or not for me too it's 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 a pathway of witchcraft and i can see these things in a myriad of different ways and you can really view it through a lens of whatever you want to put on it planetary correspondence um I think of what I do in my own personal work, um, I've alluded to it as being like a red path, um, as opposed to some other people I know who are very like their their witchcraft is very, um, very Saturnian, very like black, very, um, you know, things like that. And I think they all have their own virtues and ideas of, of what those lead to these haunted pathways that lead you to a myriad of different spirits. And I think that's what what these things do and allow people to explore and to meditate. It's not dogmatic, I think, is what I'm trying to get at, is that your your book is not, um, it's giving people a peek, or maybe not even a peek, like a really thorough um, cosmological idea of your practice, your thoughts on witchcraft, um, which is truly amazing. Um, but it's also not forcing itself upon you, mm -hmm. um, which is nice. Um, <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> as opposed to some other yeah. things where it's like, if you're not doing it this way, you're a fake witch and you should pack up and go home, which everyone knows I love a, a, a little good bit of dogma. It's not oh, that. Of course. 
But, but yeah. But you know, you mentioned something earlier about um I'm very, very clear about where a lot of these things come from. And I think I have read so many books. And many of them have been extremely instrumental in helping me build my practice. So please, um, if if you're an author and you're listening to this and you've written one of these, please understand this is not a dig whatsoever. But I've read so many books that just kind of copy and paste things that have already existed historically over and over and over and over and over again. I I I was in a place where I'm like, cool. I like that I know how to get rid of thrush from my donkey now, but how do I apply this? <laughs> But how do I apply this magic? You know, how do I apply this magic in in modernity? And I wanted to take this concept that I see in a lot of these really great older collections of spells and 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 rites that usually always end with by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen, amen, amen. And I wanted to bring them into modernity. I wanted to bring them into a modern day folklore. I wanted to create something that is always clear about its origins but gives the reader, the witch, the practitioner, a new opportunity to see it through a different lens. Because I myself don't have a, I'll say this right now, there is not a single thing that's going to end. And um, Jesus, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, there's another thing that's going to end in Amen. Um, there is going to be things in my book that you can see a historical inspiration for, but nothing that will be re- regurgitated things that already exist in history it's not a historical textbook that's not exactly it's exactly a lot of it's inspired by and i have a full bibliography in there that still even gives you not only future other books i'd suggest you read but where a lot of these inspirations came from Mm-hmm. And even the spells, if you'll, you'll notice in the in part three of the book, um, a lot of the spells that I have written will have numbers that correspond to the origin source about where I got that information from to build it in the first place. Um, that was really important to me to be extremely transparent. Um, I don't want anyone to think that I am trying to pass off some ancient legacy as 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 something that needs to be so to make it legitimate it's legitimate because i wrote it and it exists mm-hmm. spirits there marshall before we um wrap up yeah. i wanted to ask what are your plans for this i mean this has been i don't want to say it's like a grand opus i think you're too young to have a grand opus but like oh, it is something so young yeah, she's youthful oh, yeah, and do so I mean look if only the the viewers could see right now, she's still glistening from her morning workout. Yeah. But this isn't a grand opus, but it is something that you've worked on for a long time. I mean, it's been more than a year. Well, I, I started two years ago writing poetry thinking about folklore i didn't even understand that i could write my own folklore to base magic on and i started talking to a lot of people i started talking to Corey thomas hutchins i started talking to um uh aaron oberon i started talking to a lot of people about stories and folklore as an inspiration was something that i absolutely loved but i felt like there was so it's not that there was so little I could connect to. It's just that I felt like I didn't know. The better answer is I didn't know. I, I didn't know if I could create my own to 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 build a practice from. And then I just did. And, and it you was, did. And I did. And as I was writing, it's this fantastic thing where there were many times I'd write something and be like, no, 
I am being like the feeling of it was wrong. And I equate that to the spirits, making sure that I understood that's not right. The story doesn't go this way. And I'll definitely tell you as I was writing the three mothers and the seven Holy siblings stories, um, they made it clear to me when I had got it wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a really interesting feeling as somebody who, I mean, I write, I write now, um, not all the time for anybody who knows me personally, writing is not fun for me. I enjoy the work being out there. I do not like the act of doing it. I am a more talkative person. I prefer, um, dialectic, not, conversation. um, a, right. I prefer a conversation not to write. I also, um, uh, for somebody who's doing a lot more classes this year, I do not like sitting down and making uh, PowerPoints. I prefer to just talk about these things in a conversational fashion. But I also recognize, you know, that feeling for a long time before I started that the gap between me being in school and then me doing Bainex Bramble and having to write you know, has been really interesting because I never considered myself a writer mm. and I never considered myself somebody who was very good at it. Um, and then- I, I can feel know, that. I feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, you have to kind of sit with yourself when you do start doing it. And then you have to realize that, well, A, it doesn't really matter if I'm good at it or not. I still wouldn't say that I'm particularly a good writer, but I think I would say that I write honestly or earnestly, maybe mm -hmm. is a better word. Um, and I also, you know, think about, you know, being in school and receiving awards for my writing and receiving accolades for my writing. And, you know, I have like, I have awards for writing and, and then it's like weird how I'm like, but I never thought I was very good at it. Um, though that's the same way for me I remember when I was in high school the first time the teacher said no format is going to be necessary for you to write this creative writing piece because back then when we were writing everything had to be Jane Schaefer method which was five paragraphs the first one had to have the thesis slash hypothesis three sentences to explain or prove your thesis slash hypothesis three paragraphs the first sentence had to be that detail one for each and then three examples as why and then a closeout paragraph to restate your thesis and why you proved it it was absolutely devoid of any creativity in the first one I had that I wrote. I not only got a hundred on, but I even got a note saying, I have never read anything like this from you before. Wonderful. Yeah. And it, it goes to show you that like, just because um, they haven't, uh, they're good at academic writing doesn't mean they're good at writing period. And, and mm. the same can be true for, look at John Garvey. Um, <laughs> um, Every, everybody knows he was a horrible he was a horrible writer yeah well high magic said was truly cringe my my point for even going on this long-winded tangent was asking you what what is the what is your dream for this book what is the purpose mm. of this book what, what what do you want out of this book because it's now finally put out into the world mm -hmm. which is very uh, puts you in a very vulnerable place yes and I'm sure you know, I mean, you're you're publishing print on demand through Amazon, mm -hmm. which means that everybody and their brother is going to have access to you. We mm -hmm. obviously know, I know people who 
um, make it their own primary business to make fake accounts and um, attack authors that they don't like on um, Amazon. So <laughs> what do you, what do you think, what's going to happen? What's next for you? Will there be a continuation of the stories? Um, are you going to drop it, make something new? I mean, I know we've hinted at special editions, which you didn't want to talk about. And so I'm wondering if we're going to hear anything more about that or what's going on. As far as special editions, not today. We won't talk about that today. Um, but I will say that this book has been prolific for me. Um, I have my next two books, uh, my next two book ideas laid out now um, after writing my first one. So I'm excited. That means I will be writing for the next, at least until 2025. And um, I'm really excited to start getting into it because I have started to notice more and more people getting into the boat of this stream, if you will, of narrative magic and storytelling. Um, I know Cross Crow Books has a new book coming out that I could, I think I just pre-ordered it, that is all about, uh, it's a witch's book of terribles. And it's a collection of stories, you know. Um, I think that this is something that the zeitgeist in the witchcraft community is starting to really tap into more. And I absolutely encourage that. Um, I'm really, really excited. And I hope that it inspires people to write their own stories. I, I almost was going to have 12 stories and the 13th one be several blank pages for um, the actual reader to write their own. But then I thought, fuck that, I'm writing a 13th story. And <laughs> But I, I, I deeply encourage people to see their magic through a folkloric lens, through a narrative, to give life, to give spirit, to give a, a journey for your witchcraft, um, for how you experience your witchcraft. So I'm very excited. I already have the title of my next two books. I already have a semi-basic layout of them as well. Um, I don't want to give any more details on them. Those will also be self-published. Uh, I'm, I think I'm down for the self-publishing now that I've got the hang of how to do everything, how to not do certain things. Uh, I'm I'm really excited about it. And and yes, I actually do feel extremely vulnerable right now. I I I was talking with some of my friends about the fact that I absolutely know there are going to be people who will hate this book. There are going to be people who will not like how queer it is. There are going to be people who will um, basically probably say this is fake because he made it all up. And I'm like, well, I was very clear about that. <laughs> you know? Well, also too, I'm, I'm really, uh, you know, I'm not the kind of person who will give credence to the um, just making things up because kind of person. I'm usually yeah. not There's that, no but... just because in my book. There is always a reason or origin source. Well, also too, like, I, I'm sorry that if we believe in... in that we're talking to fucking dead people and yeah. not even believe. I, I usually don't even like that word, but like, let's look at it from a secular lens. We call ourselves witches. Yep. We talk to dead people. We talk to fairies. We talk to demons. We talk to spirits. You're listening uh, to two fairies right now. You're listening to two fairies right now. And <laughs> honestly, like, and then to think that it has to be historically accurate, like when half the time that doesn't actually mean anything so my point being is that it's just not like 
I'd like to revisit a post I made about how you can sprinkle uh, basil on your pizza or your homemade Italian food. And as you sprinkle it on there, say, um, uh, uh, bring me money, bring me money, bring me money, or, or easy money, easy money, easy money is a simple charm to attract prosperity into your life. And someone commented saying, um, I, hi, I'm an Italian practitioner. Uh, my, my field of study is in Italian folk magic. I have never heard this spell. Can you cite the academic source where you got this from? And I'm like, I'm sorry. I never mentioned Italian folk magic. Basil exists outside of Italy. I don't know if you know this. You can get it at Kroger. Yeah. <laughs> so and basil has also, its own what, what like, does, section of prosperity. What, what does uh what does Italian folk practice mean? Seeing as how Italy wasn't a unified country until the mid nineteen hundreds, so it, are you talking? <laughs> are you Romanesque? Are you talking about Etruscan? Are you talking about Sicilian? Are you talking about Thessalian? Are you talking? About... I'm um right. Well, everyone knows that I can be a bitch, honestly. So, um, yes. I am I talking about Krogurian. Okay. <laughs> because I got the basil at Kroger and it and was a also, frozen pizza. <laughs> also to um you know it's it's like people always have a like a correspondence and when those when those things conflict and it's like oh can two things not not be true at once like uh myths of if you rub two pieces of basil, basil leaves together um scorpions will appear um because it's a martial herb. And then me and like a bunch of other people are nowhere like mm, it's more solar to me. It really likes the sun. It's very fresh and and summery tasting. Like literally it tastes like summer to me. Um uh, you know, so so which one is it? And can they not be both right at the same time? Absolutely. This is a tangent uh for <laughs> about basil, but yeah. Um But still it's 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 relative. It is. And um, I, I know we had already talked about uh, it being on Amazon, but where can people find your book now that it's yes. released? Yes, you can find it. You on have Amazon. it on every platform. Yes, I, 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 you can find it on Amazon. It is self-published through Amazon. So trying to reach out to me and asking me if you can buy it directly from me to help me out a little bit more will not because I don't own it. I mean, I own it. I just don't have a copy of the book. It is print on demand, which means pre-orders are not necessary. You will never run out. There is not a, a stock of books that you have to get it before it runs out. Um, it is print on demand. So as soon as you order it, it will be printed. It's going to come in four different versions get ready for this it's coming in an ebook version it's going to come in an economical small five by eight black and white limited illustration edition so that's more like per size or, or easy to carry around with you and um because a lot of the illustrations that i did originally are in color on the standard paper even on the standard paper uh, uh, uh selection i could not charge less than $28 for it without without making any profit whatsoever. So um, I recognize that a $28 book is not always economical for everyone. And I wanted to make sure that people have options here. So if, if, if it fits your budget more so to go with the smaller paperback or the ebook that will be available, there will also be a more midsize 5.5 by 5.8 color standard paperback. And then there will be a hardcover book. And the hardcover one is my favorite. It's a six by nine. It's going to be closer to around um, 58 to $60. 
Um, it has full illustrations and the premium color paper. The only thing is, is standard color and hardcover are not available in Australia right now. So Australia can get the ebook and then the black and white version. Um, that's not me, that's Amazon. And I look forward to hopefully also publishing with Ingram Spark so it can be distributed um, amongst retailers. And I think Ingram Spark also will help distribute in libraries and later down the line, an option for full color pages and hardcover in Australia. Ingram Spark also manufactures books as well. Yes. So that way, like if you go to a Barnes and Noble and you say, hey, do you have cunning words of grimoire of tales and magic? And they're like, no, we don't. Um, can you order it for me um, from the Ingram Spark catalog? Once, once a, a bookstore has ordered it, they have the option once they see it's out of stock to continue ordering it if it sells. So when this comes out um, and I have announced that I put it on Ingram Spark, uh, please go to your bookstores, ask to have them get you copies in. Uh, it will continue to be restocked and it will get my book in retail stores as well as, you know, occult and metaph metaphysical shops. You've been listening to Southern Bramble, a podcast of Crooked Ways. I'm Marshall, the Witch of Southern Light, the author of Cunning Words, a grimoire of tales and magic. You can find me on TikTok and Instagram at Witch of Southern Light. You can find me on uh, Twitter at MarshallWSL. If you would like to buy my art, there is going to be actual art and illustrations from my book on my Redbubble shop. You can find that under the merchandise section and all of the link trees on my bio. Check out that link tree. There are so many free resources. Save it as an app on your home screen. Uh, you can go back to it for um, planetary hours, calculators, uh, uh, crystal and, and herbal properties. I promise you it is a free resource um, that all witches can have access to. Uh, and Lastly, if you'd like to have closer access to me, I don't answer uh, a lot of my just kind of random DMs because I get so many. If you'd like to have more closer access to me, um, check out my Patreon. I have five, ten, and fifteen dollar options. I have a Discord for the top two, and if you join the top three, you can ask me anything, anytime, and I will make personal sigils just for you on demand. And I'm Austin Bain X Bramble. You can. Um, catch my lecture coming up at Botanica Obscure, the, the Botanica Obscura conference, um, which actually might have passed by the time that this comes out. Um, I don't know, but it is the 26th of March, um, and I don't know when this is going to come out, so hopefully it's uh, already there. You can also find some of my um, perfumes, spirit houses, uh, lectures and workshops which i will be doing more of this coming year um at banexbramble.com and i also have by the time that this is released a uh non-spammy uh monthly email newsletter so we can actually update people on what's going on seeing as how everything kind of gets lost in social media nowadays um so yeah i hope to see you all very soon Southern Bramble is a Patreon-supported podcast. We wanted to thank each of our Patreon supporters by name. Witch Rafa, V, Tracy, Timothy, The Witch of Patapsco Forest, The Modern Babylon, The Lady Ghost, Shanna, Nathan, Lisa, 
Keith, Key, Johnny, John, Jens, Jennifer, Jennifer Squared, Jamisa, Giles, Florence, Cindy, Ariella, and Adity. Thank you all so, so much for your support. <laughs>